Will you please turn in your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews? Danny prayed the passage, and I will now, God helping me, preach the passage. Allow me for a moment to say what a privilege it is for me to be here. Uh, Joan and I remember with, with great fondness being with you uh, a few years back. We were deeply touched by your kindness, your, your welcome, and just the open-heartedness of your fellowship. Uh, we're very different. I'm not from here, in case you were wondering. Uh, but though we come from different places, we are one in Christ, and that oneness transcends cultures, places, time, space, color, culture, everything. And it's great that we can be here on an occasion like this to together sit under the Word of God. So, pay careful attention as we hear the Word of the living God, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Let me pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, we come seeking the help, the promised help of the Holy Spirit, that Your Word would come to us not in word only, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. We ask, Lord, that Your Word would not succumb simply to us accurately, but powerfully, that the Holy Spirit may impress its truth deeply, life-changingly, even savingly into our lives tonight. May this be for us a day of days when we leave this place different from when we came. May your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. We ask it all in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. What you think about God is the most significant thing about you. Whoever you are, whatever age you are, whatever your history, culture, color, race, 
the most significant thing about you is not your education, not your heritage, not your wealth or lack of it. The most significant thing about you is what you think about God. And I would like this evening then to consider with you these opening verses in the letter to the Hebrews, though in particular we will focus on but one verse. I want to notice with you, first of all, the context. Sometimes we, we read the Bible as if uh, the apostles are instructing us in the great truths of the gospel, in the great truths of the God who Himself is the gospel, and that's true. But the whole of Scripture is written contextually. The letters of the New Testament, for example, were all of them written to churches in various degrees of turmoil. And Paul is seeking to minister the truth of God, the grace of God, the Word of God in its fullness into the turmoils, the confusions, the uncertainties that were upsetting the life of the body of Christ at that time. And this letter to the Hebrews is a letter that is rich in theology. There are passages in it that are profound in the extreme. But if you forget why this letter was written, you will miss the force of what the apostle is writing. The letter to the Hebrews was written, as probably all of you might know, to Jewish believers. They had come to place their hope and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, promised of God, sent by God, given by God. But in doing so, they were discovering the cost of belonging to Jesus Christ in a fallen, hostile world. And they were being pressured to turn back from Christ and to return to the Judaism out of which they had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They were in danger of apostatizing, in danger of leaving the way of Christ and returning back to the age of shadow and promise and ceremony. And the writer uses two main weapons in his pastoral armory to address the precipitous nature of the condition that these professing Christian believers were in. And you'll know perhaps, if you know the letter to the Hebrews at all, that there are six warning passages that punctuate the 13 chapters where he warns them of the dread eternal consequences of turning back from Christ. The first one you find, beginning of chapter 2, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation that God has provided for us and given to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, he punctuates the letter with warnings. But at the very end of his letter, he, he describes the whole letter as a brief word of encouragement or exhortation. It's, it's a very difficult to precisely translate uh, the Greek word. Um, it's really a paracletic epistle, an epistle that is seeking to uh, warn and exhort, but also richly encourage. And how does he encourage them? Well, he understands that the great pastoral weapon at his disposal is to lift up before them the preeminence, the excellency, the unsurpassable glory of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what he is doing in these opening verses. He is seeking to say to them, see how great he is. How could you conceivably think of turning back from such a glorious, magnificent, preeminent Savior? Now, what he does is to highlight seven features that belong to the glory of Christ. It's, it's like a theological diamond, and he looks at one facet after another, saying, in essence, do you see how great he is? Do you see how altogether glorious he is? And I want to focus on one of the facets but before I do that, I want to give you a sense of the sweep, the escalating sweep of the grandeur of what the apostle is saying to these hard-pressed, sorely-pressed believers who are being tempted because of the cost of faithfulness to Christ, being tempted to turn away from Christ. I want simply to notice with you just very briefly, the escalating, developing momentum of how this pastor is seeking to restore and perhaps even recover men and women, boys and girls, who are even now beginning perhaps to drift away from Christ. It's a wonderful exemplar of how pastors are to go about ministering to professing believers who are drifting from Christ. He tells them, first of all, you'll notice that Jesus, their Savior, is God's Son, His best and final word to a lost, perishing world. Long ago, at many times and in different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but, notice the strong adversative, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And He's not simply making a theological statement here. He's making a calculated pastoral encouragement. He's saying to them, how could you conceivably 
turn back from him who is God's last, best, and final word to this world. You would be mad to do so. And then he tells them that Jesus, their Savior, has been appointed the heir of all things, through whom whom he appointed the heir of all things. How could you conceivably think of turning back from him who is the heir of all things in heaven and on earth? It would be madness to do that. Do you see what he's doing here? He's, he's saying theology, doctrine, is transformational for life. Grasp who your Savior is. Sink your life into the truth of who He is. He's the heir of all things. Would you think of turning back from Him? And then He tells them, you'll notice that through Jesus, their Savior, God created the world, through whom also He he created the world. How could you even think of turning back from such a glorious one as this? Through whom, by whom, God created the cosmos. It would be madness to do so. And then he tells them, and we'll return to this in more detail, but let me simply make the point. He tells them that Jesus, their Savior, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Do you know this is who your Savior is? He is the radiance, the effulgence, the outshining. He is himself the Shekinah of the glory of God. And you're thinking of turning back from him? Are you in your right mind? It would be madness to do this. And then he tells them that this Jesus, their Savior, upholds the universe by the word of his power. The whole cosmos is upheld by him. In him all things hold together. Your existence, every, con- every atom, every subatomic particle, all of it is upheld by him. And you are thinking because of the costliness of belonging to him, to turn back from him. And then he makes one of the great gospel statements found in the whole Bible. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's saying to him, do you understand that if you turn away from Jesus, you're cutting yourself off from the one who alone has made purification for sins and who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what he's doing here is not making abstract theological statements. Doctrine is not brute chunks of facts that are true. Doctrine is instinct with life. We're intended to reflect upon truth, ponder truth, allow the dynamic of truth as well as the factness of truth 
to sink into our lives and to allow the truth to so permeate our beings that we are woken up of our slumbers and think, what madness to think that I should ever turn away from Him. But having just given you the briefest sweep of this pastor's concern for these believers who are in danger of making shipwreck of their souls, I want to return with you to the statement we read in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This is one of the most staggering statements that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. You'll notice, first of all, that the author identifies the Son as the radiance, apaugmasma, the radiance, the outshining glory of the glory of God and the exact imprint, literally the exact character of His nature. Now, the first phrase here, the radiance of the glory of God, highlights the oneness of the Son with the Father. Just as the Son never existed without its radiance, its outshining, so God the Father has never existed without His radiance, the Son. And if the first statement, the first phrase refers to the oneness of the Son with the Father, the second statement refers to His distinctness from the Father. He is one with the Father, and yet He is distinct from the Father. He not only is the radiance of the glory of God, He is the exact imprint of His nature. What the writer is doing here is highlighting the essential glory of the person of the Son of God. I don't know most of you in any way at all, but I want to say to you tonight, whoever you are, whatever age you are, whatever your history, your background, that if you have struggles and trials and troubles, if your life is being invaded by unexpected providences that have humbled you and are about to would seem to overwhelm you, I want, dear friend, to tell you this. Your great need is to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Nothing, nothing under heaven will do you more good and help you cope with your trials, your troubles, your your sore, overwhelming providences than a deepening Holy Spirit, enlightening understanding of how great your Savior is. He is telling us here that the Son is nothing less than the essential glory of God Himself. He is the Shekinah glory, 
which in the Old Testament, of course, you'll remember, signified the very presence of God in the midst of this people. And this is what the Apostle John saw, wasn't it? Kyle read that to us in the prologue to John's gospel. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, He tabernacled among us, skenied among us, mishkaned among us. And in the tabernacle, who is Jesus Christ, we beheld the glory of God. But you see what the writer is saying here. He's, he isn't saying anything new to these professing believers. When we're struggling, when life is hard, when the temptations of the evil one are pressing, it's not profound deep truths that we need to hear. We need to be reminded of the essential verities of the gospel. And at the very heart of the verities of the gospel is that the Word who was with God and who was God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, so much so that when Philip, John 14, when Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He's not confusing the persons of the Godhead, but He's saying, I am the perfect representation, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. But what does all that mean? A year or two back, I was, uh, sometimes I talk things through with Joe, and if I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to be clear enough, or if I'm going to use words that people might not understand, Joan's very good at saying, that's not a common word. I say, it is a common word. She said, no one will ever have heard of it. And I was saying something to her, and she said, you know, will it help me do the ironing? I've never forgotten that. Will it help me do the ironing? Absolutely. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the doctrine of Jesus Christ as the express radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of His nature, His character, will help you do the ironing. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, let me try and explain it. What are these statements saying to us? Well, first of all, they are affirming unequivocally the essential deity of the Son. That's, that's what he's saying. This Jesus that you are contemplating turning back from is God. In Him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. He is reminding them that the deity of Christ is not a subordinate deity. He is not less than Yahweh. He is the I Am who spoke to Moses. He is equally 
with the Father to be loved, to be worshipped, to be adored, to be served, to be honored. And when he says the Father is greater than I, he's speaking as our mediator, as our covenant head in our place, as one of us and one with us. As to his eternal glory, he is not subordinate, he's not less than the Father. He is autotheos, he is God in himself. He doesn't derive his godness from the Father. He is God. And you're thinking of turning back from him. And the writer is not underestimating the trials and the pressures and the struggles and the hostilities. He would say the same thing to believers in Afghanistan today. He would say the same thing to to believers in, in Pakistan or in Somalia or wherever. To people who actually know what it means to suffer for Christ. He would be saying the same things. Behold your Savior. See how great he is. But then secondly, no statement, I think, in the Bible more highlights the Son's uniqueness. No one other than Him is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, notice these words. I want to pause here for a moment. No one other than Him is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, most modern translations of the Bible, um, the New American Standard Version is a little different, thankfully, but most modern versions, NIV, ESV, and others, translate monogenes huios, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, only begotten son, monogenes huios. They translate that God's one and only Son, or God's only Son. Well, that's very wrong and yet very right. So let me explain. He is God's one and only Son. We are sons by adoption. He is son by nature. He derives his sonship, though not his deity, from the Father. But only begotten is the correct translation. The morphology, just bear with me for a moment because it is important. The morphology is not Mono only plus genos, kind, one of a kind, only kind. It's mono plus genao, only begotten, to beget. The same words, he he begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. Well, maybe you're thinking, Ian, but does it really matter? You know, one of a kind, one and only, in only begotten, I mean, what does that actually mean? Does it really matter? 
Well, it does matter. It matters because the Son was not made. He made all things. And sons are begotten, and God the Son being eternal was eternally begotten. So the phrase, only begotten, actually speaks of his eternal relationship with the Father. Now, maybe you're going to ask me, well, what does it actually mean, Ian? Well, I don't really know, and no one knows, and I'm not sure even in heaven we will ever know. So maybe you're thinking, well, if we don't really know, why is it so important that we should read the phrase monogenes huios as only begotten son and not just the only son or the one and only son? Well, for three reasons. Number one, because that's what the words mean, you know, that's just what the words mean. Translate what's there. Don't translate what's there in the light of the culture of your time. Translate what's there. Number two, all the Greek fathers, who presumably knew Greek better than the translators of the NIV and the ESV, it was their native language, they all said only begotten. And thirdly, the phrase helps us to distinguish the individual persons of the Holy Trinity. I didn't know any of the songs you sang earlier. They, they, they were excellent. I don't know which of the ones had the Father is unbegotten. That was fabulous. My heart rose. I, I, I almost wanted to shout out, but being a Scottish Presbyterian, I wouldn't. Hallelujah! <laughs> you see, the phrase helps to distinguish the individual persons in the Godhead. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We're out of our depth. But as Augustine said, we, we speak so that we don't remain silent. You know, the Holy Trinity is, is glory wrapped up in mystery. And so, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His character, is helping us in some small little way to, like Job, say, I, I'm touching the outskirts of your ways. And thirdly, no statement more placards to us the multi-persons of the Godhead. God is one, and yet God is three. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, proston theon, was literally face to face with God, and He was God. Now, nothing was more significant to, to Jewish people than the oneness of God. You know the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy uh, 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Shema Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And yet, right from the very beginning of Scripture, we have these hints, these tantalizing hints, let us make man in our own image. I don't think that's simply a plural of majesty. I think that's God dropping a hint that's going to be developed in significant ways. Genesis 18, the angel of the Lord, these three strangers who appear to Abraham and interchangeably, the stranger is called even Yahweh. And so here, the writer is saying to them, do you know what you're doing? You're going to walk out on God if you turn away from Jesus. You're going to walk out on the I am who made all things, who is before all things, who in him all things hold together, who upholds every breath that you breathe, who has provided purification for your sins, who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. To turn back from Jesus is to abandon God and to leave yourself facing the nightmare prospect of a lost eternity. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Ian, this is all very fine, but will it help me do the ironing? I don't mean it will help you do the ironing better, but it will help you do the ironing, so let me explain. The doctrine of God is not simply a truth that you're to acknowledge in your head, confess with your lips. It's not a truth that you are to um, intellectually or even religiously or even evangelically subscribe to. It's a truth that is to captivate all that you are. all that you are. I've used this illustration recently, and maybe Joan will tell me later I've used it too much, but a few months ago, our oldest boy, David, was being interviewed for a position as a partner in an international law firm in London, and uh, he went through all the various stages they had sought him out. He's a litigator, and they had this final interview with the partners of the firm. And the first question he was asked was, what gets you up in the morning? I think, you know, he was a bit surprised. He thought, well, tell us your views about, you know, financial litigation, whatever. What gets you up in the morning? I said, what, what did you say, son? He said, well, my first thought was my three children get me up in the morning. <laughs> and then I thought, no. I said, what did you say? I said to them, the glory of God gets me up in the morning. And my three children. <laughs> and, you know, our hearts rose when he said that. He wanted the partners in the law firm to know that what motivated him in life was not personal prestige, was not to make a name for himself that others would recognize. It was that God would be glorified. And that's what helps you do the ironing. 
Because whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Do all to the glory of God. The doctrine of God, and that is focused upon prismatically in the person of Jesus Christ. Through the prismatic glory of Jesus Christ, we begin to begin to begin to behold the glory of God. And that is intended to shape all that we are, all that we think, all that we do as men, as women, as boys, as girls, as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents. But let me crystallize it as I draw to a close in two ways. If someone were to ask me, well, tell me, Ian, bring this right down to daily life. What is the glory of Jesus Christ as the exact image of God and the radiance of the Father's glory? What, what should that really do to me and for me? Well, two things. It should cause you to bow down and worship. That's the first thing. Do you know at the Reformation, John Calvin in 1543 wrote a wonderful little treatise um, called On the Necessity of Reforming the Church. The church in Rome and the reformers had had some dialogue over whether it were possible there could be a rapprochement, a coming together, and it, thankfully, no, it didn't happen. And the leading reformer said to Calvin, you need to write something to explain why there was a reformation. And so he did. It's a fabulous piece of writing. And so Calvin dedicates this treatise to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And he says to the emperor, your majesty, I know you are wondering why there was a reformation. I need to tell you, there was a reformation, number one, because God was not being worshipped according to his word. That's where the reformers began. Why was there a reformation? Justification? No, 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 Luther said, no, we'll come to that. No, no. God first, man second. The reason why there was a reformation was God was not being worshipped according to his word. And so the doctrine of God, as it is set before us in Holy Scripture, summons us to bow down and worship. That's the native instinct of a child of God. I think perhaps it may well be the first instinct that regeneration gives birth to in our lives. We discover that to our astonishment, we're new creations. And we want to praise God with others who are new creations. <laughs> it's a great thing about regeneration. It's, it's individual, but it's communal. It brings us into the body of Christ. And so the doctrine of God, the, the glory of Christ, 
is summoning us, bow down and worship. Find yours. People say today, how, how can I find myself? You know, I'm, I'm looking for identity. How can I find myself? Bow down and worship. That's where you'll find yourself. You'll find who you are as you bow down and lift up your heart in praise and thanksgiving, in confession to the living God who has made himself known in his son, Jesus Christ. So it summons us to bow down and worship. And then secondly, it summons us to get up and go. You think, well, how does it do that? When the Lord Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, before he ascended into heaven, he gathers his disciples together, Matthew 28. He says, go make disciples of all the nations. What, what, what were they to do? Baptizing them into the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is embedded in evangelism, in mission, because God is a missionary-hearted God. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God had but one Son, and He made Him a missionary. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples, I was saying to someone this morning, He's not saying, as you go about your business as a student, uh, at school or college, as you go about your work as a builder, um, as an engineer, as a bus driver, He's not saying, bear witness. That's true. That's another truth that you find right throughout Scripture. Matthew 28 is summoning the church corporately to send people out to the unreached parts of the world to make Christ known so that from every tribe, language, tongue, people, and nation, God will have a people to His praise and His glory. So it summons us to bow down and worship, but then it summons us to get up and go out. And so the Lord said to Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Are there any here who will go in the name of the Holy Trinity to the ends of the earth? Is there anyone here tonight who's willing to say, Lord, here am I, send me in the name of the Holy Trinity to see people come to faith, be baptized into the life of the church, because it's a, it's a summons to build gospel churches, not just to win converts. That's never been God's plan. God's plan has always been to gather believers into communities of faith under pastors and elders to teach them to admonish them, encourage them, challenge them, care for them, discipline them, so that sheep may have shepherds. So, the Holy Trinity says, who will go for us? May the Lord give us the grace to say, 
Lord, here am I. Send me.